0: The Spin-off Podcast Network.
1: Tallow for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the facts change is
2: brought to you by The Spin-off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwibank. The Bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business, or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi, making Kiwi better off. I'll let you in on a dirty little secret. A couple of weeks ago... I spent $16.50 on one punnet of strawberries at a supermarket in Wellington. Now, to be fair, it was one of the bigger punnets, so 500 grams. So even then, 7 or $8 for a normal punnet of strawberries is pretty expensive. But I have to tell you, I have a deep weakness for strawberries, particularly the juicy red ones, because they reek. Of summer, They make you feel good. And when we're heading into autumn, there's nothing better than some fresh, juicy, sweet strawberries um, cut up on my porridge in the morning to make me feel good. So I just couldn't resist, and I enjoyed them over three or four breakfasts. Why am I telling you about this? Because I think you can learn a lot about the flaws in the New Zealand economy through this punnet of strawberries. This punnet was from Lewis Farms a live-in-based operation, which has been around for three or four generations. But only in the last few years has it completely changed the way it grows strawberries. And it's a real lesson for New Zealand's small businesses and how they can become more productive. And this is important because New Zealand has a real problem. We have way too many small businesses. We have 500,000 small businesses in New Zealand many of them that are effectively zombies. They are not growing. They are not particularly profitable. They tend to get formed because it's very easy to start a small business in New Zealand. They grow up. Some of them provide a regular income for whoever owns a small business, sometimes not a very lucrative one, but it just sort of staggers on. It doesn't die. Now, in most other countries, those sorts of businesses go out of business. Essentially, it's very difficult to borrow against those businesses, and if you have a bad year, they typically go bankrupt. But in New Zealand, that's not the case, because many people who own these businesses and create these businesses also have houses and land, which is appreciating in value so much that if they have a bad year, they can just dip into the equity in their home. No problems. So what you're actually doing with that business, you might be a tradie or running some small farm. And nominally, it's the thing you do. But what you're really doing is farming land, if you like. You are taking advantage of leveraged tax-free capital gains. And it's one of the reasons we have such a low proportion of our small businesses that grow up and become really big to develop some scale, to develop some productivity, use some technology, use some special marketing skills or product development to actually become quite big and quite productive and generate real cash profits. We don't have many of those. And strawberries are a really good way to look at this problem because in New Zealand, most of our strawberry farms are on the edge of town. I remember as a kid, and this is one of the reasons I have a deep weakness for Juicy Red Strawberries in summer, is that every year, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I would get together with the rest of my family, and when we'd go out to a pick-your-own-strawberry place, and it was such a fun thing. We'd go there with our little ice cream containers, and we'd fill them up with one load of strawberries, and of course we'd eat two loads of strawberries as we went. The economics of it from a strawberry farmer's point of view made no sense whatsoever, but it was a lot of fun for us. And you can see for a lot of strawberry farms, the ones who are thinking about how to make money out of this, they've developed cafes and childcare centres and those wonderful strawberry ice creams, the real fruit ice creams, you know, where you freeze the fruit and then you put it into that grindy machine. It twirls and squirts out into the cone, and it's the best thing i have ever had for summer. Actually, quite an unusually New Zealand thing. <laughs> there are some places overseas that sell New Zealand-style real fruit ice cream. It's one of the innovations of our strawberry farming business. But Lewis Farms has done more than just create real fruit ice cream. They've also changed the way that strawberries are grown. Now, of course, in most uh, New Zealand strawberry farms, you have the mounds of black plastic and the strawberry plants growing out in the open air, vulnerable to changes in temperature, uh, particularly wet or humid summer, which is actually what we had in the summer that's just passed. However, if you invest in uh, big, long plastic tunnels with trays of a coconut base that you plant your strawberry plants in, you can actually completely transform your productivity. And that's what Lewis Farms has done. It has brought in from overseas these plastic tunnels and grown its strawberries hydroponically. Because by doing that, it gets more control over the amount of fruit per plant. In fact, there's a significant increase in the yield of those plants. And it's also significantly increased the amount of strawberries that someone can pick in an hour because you're not having to bend down. It's right in front of you. You actually can pick three times as much strawberries from these trays at waist height in a hydroponic tunnel than you can by bending over and crawling along the ground picking up uh, strawberries in a conventional farm. That means that Lewis Farms is able to produce a lot more strawberries more consistently for a higher quality for a longer period and get access to the supermarkets because it can build a brand and be able to exercise some pricing power. Pricing power, that means they can charge me, I'm sure the supermarket took its cut, $16.50 for a punnet of strawberries. This is important because the people at Lewis Farms, Cam Lewis, and Catherine Lewis have just quietly built something that is pretty new and interesting in New Zealand the use of these hydroponic farms. And they're doing it in a way that a lot of other strawberry farmers have chosen not to because many of them are on the fringes of town. They've been able to sit there and essentially make an awful lot of money by just being on the edge of town, being ready to develop that land into residential properties. And you've seen that quite a few of these farms have been lost over the years as they've been developed into suburbs, are often very rich and productive land. But farmers who maybe have had that business for several generations are quite happy just being a strawberry farmer, not just potter along, a good year here, a bad year there. But you don't have to worry much when the real job you have is actually just sitting on the land, waiting for the tax-free leveraged capital gains to come along. So this week I spoke to Jeff Langford, who is an expert uh, plant and water scientist based at Lincoln, who's been involved with the strawberry industry since 1971. He's seen all the different varieties come and go and seen how the industry has developed. I also spoke to Wayne McKenty, a business banker for Kiwi Bank, based in Auckland, who's dealt with a lot of farms, a lot of these small businesses that have to make that decision. Do I continue to stagger along, perhaps run a lifestyle business, or do I try to increase the productivity of the business, grow its scale, grow its complexity, improve its marketing, uh, use investments in technology and in skills to grow the output per hour work? And... That is the key problem New Zealand has. We do not have high enough productivity. And remember, half a million small businesses, not many of them go broke. Our ratio of those that go up and become very productive versus the ones that go out and fall over is actually very low compared to the rest of the world. We need to get there. We need to have a lot more of these Lewis Farms-type businesses that are looking for growth, looking for scale, And looking to improve what they do day in, day out by investing capital in something other than land. That's this week in When the Facts Change. A story about strawberries, about productivity and about how it is as a country. We're not really growing our incomes much. Instead, we're relying on land for our wealth. So to find out more about how small businesses make these sorts of investment decisions, I spoke to Wayne McEntee who is the Regional Manager for Business Banking at Kiwi Bank, who's dealt a lot with strawberry farms. Oh welcome in Wayne to the spin-off for When the Facts Change. It's great to see you here.
1: Lovely to be here, Bernard. Thanks and, for having me.
2: And it's great to hear that um, you also care about strawberries. <laughs> because this is a podcast about strawberry farming. Well, it's actually a podcast about turning small businesses into much bigger businesses. And my understanding that as a banker you have worked with businesses that grow strawberries. What we found is that some of them are actually, I mean, they're really good strawberry farmers, but in essence, they're land bankers with fruit businesses. Tell us what you know as a banker about what are the sort of factors that strawberry farmers have to think
1: about. <laughs> well, you're right. M- many of them are farming on the, the city fringe or the town fringe, and so the value is held in their land lot. and. They might have a strong sort of farm gate, honesty box type business with, a, with an ice cream van or something attached to it. But, but in essence, you're dead right. A lot of it is the capital is tied up in the property itself. And they, can be, uh, they mightn't invest that much in their businesses, but they might just be waiting for the time when a property developer comes in and writes them out the big cheque.
2: Yeah, and and in a way, that's a nice microcosm for a lot of small businesses in New Zealand. They're doing something maybe they enjoy personally, Um, maybe they love a good strawberry, or maybe it is they're uh, running a small business that um, they enjoy being an electrician, or maybe they enjoy being a, a small farmer of some sort, but they don't have great ambitions to grow, or if they do have spare capital, they've worked out, like a lot of New Zealanders, that the lowest risk... Uh, highest profit, lowest tax way to spend that spare capital is to maybe invest it in their land um, or beef up their home or buy a bit more land. Uh, But I'm curious about the ones who choose to actually grow their businesses on that land. So what I'm curious about, and you must see lots of different businesses come to you and who are thinking about growth, or maybe not, what is it that really Uh, is the secret ingredient that means some businesses make the leap from being just a few people, maybe a small family operation, to maybe it's 20 or 30 or 50 people maybe exporting. Um, What is it that really makes a difference?
1: Mm. Well, well, some of the businesses, you're right, are are focused on growth. Some of the businesses at the moment in the relatively unsettled economy we're in, some of them are are focused on survival. Um, And then there's a, a vast amount of you know examples between those two spectrums, but um, in the main, what what stands out to me is businesses that know and understand and are really close to the numbers. So they watch their P and L really, really carefully. So that you know, when I'm talking to someone or a business owner that knows and understands the P and L, the profit and loss, um, and the effect of the P and L on their balance sheet, that's the you know being close to the numbers. I know it's easy for a banker or an accountant to say, but you really do need to be close to it because if you're close to those numbers, you'll understand your return on investment. And some of those, some of those farmers won't have a great ROI or return on investment um, from the the capital that they've put into their land. Um, so yeah, you know, that's the first thing: being that's close to the numbers. A
2: lot of businesses haven't necessarily separated their main asset, which may have nothing to do with the business itself, it's just the land that the the, the asset's on, haven't really worked out whether that asset alone washes its own
1: face. Face, yeah. Yeah, so if they're happy to you know invest into their business and not into their land, um, then they've got to look at their capital, you know, what's required and what's the best return on investment for the added capital that they're going to tip in. Um, and generally, the customer sort of leads that process. So you know, we're talking about a strawberry farmer, but whatever customer, whether you're selling widgets or you're selling high-quality, high-value items, um, it's all about the customer and it's the successful businesses that – that we see are really customer centric, so they're they're focused on the customer experience. So in that strawberry farmers um, example, you know what what is the customer journey? Uh, are they pulling into a nice clean facility? You know, going and buying a punnet of beautiful strawberries from a caravan that's a caravan that's you know selling not only the strawberries but ice cream and coffee and there's tables. That, you know, it's the full customer experience and. Businesses that have that customer experience at the forefront of their mind are doing the best, in my opinion.
2: Now, the example that we're talking about in this episode is a farm which has decided to invest in its systems and in capital in the uh, the plastic um, tents over the strawberries and the hydroponic trays and doing it in a way so that they're much easier for people to pick. They're not having to bend over and break their backs. And doing it at a scale and a consistency, which means they can offer a, a particular product at a particular volume to a particularly high margin buyer for a longer period. So they're essentially taking a lot of the risk out of the business, building scale into the business and building profit into the business by uh, having a particularly high quality and very consistent product, uh, which is quite tough to do if you're a farmer (laughs) reliant on the weather. So um, what struck me about this example is that they have decided to um, scale up by investing in technology and science. But also marketing and getting scale. How uh, how do how do you advise people who are thinking? Well, I've got I'm really good at this thing that I do. How do I get scale? What is what is the sort of secret uh, way to to get scale?
1: So, I mean, that when we're talking about that particular example, understanding the unique selling proposition. So, what is unique? What makes it? And they've obviously been really quite creative. Um, and they've problem solved. You know that the problem was that they could only produce strawberries over a thin window, but by putting them under hot houses, they can extend that window. And then you talked about the supermarket that they supply, and obviously the, the customers there are obviously you know they're, they're the very end of the the consumer, and they're dragging that product through the supply chain. So um, that's relatively easy for someone like me to understand um, because you can you can see how the capital invested results in the change in the P&L.
2: And um, the sorts of advice that um, you can hook your customers up with in particular case, because often the, the real challenge is, yes, I know how to do strawberries, but I'm not so sure about the packaging because that's not my expertise. Or I've never really thought about the marketing and maybe you know how do you um work with those businesses to ensure the thing that would give them the scale and the profitability which they don't necessarily have but if they marry up with their partners, special yeah. thing how do you how do you do you work on that
1: Well we'd look at make sure that they had the correct partners you know and um and if they didn't have them, we'd try and introduce them or find someone that would, would know who those partners were. And then you know, collaboration and a cohesive approach to to, to get that um, supply chain running would be the way to go.
2: Mm. And um what are the sort of main mistakes that people make when they're thinking about growing their 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 business because they you know everyone thinks wow I'm really good at this this is amazing. Um I just I'll just do more of it and it'll all sell or uh, <laughs> uh what are the what are the the pitfalls?
1: Well, doing exactly the opposite. So not not partnering correctly, trying to do it all themselves um and doing it poorly and then you know a, in a strawberry sense they might produce uh, inferior product and their market crashes, their consumers um, no longer rely on their product and they, they shop elsewhere. So, yeah, the exact opposite of what we're discussing really is the, is the biggest pitfall.
2: And for a lot of businesses, they when they have that choice, do I stay at my current small scale, which may not be unprofitable, uh, or I can um, choose to try and do the investment myself and get to scale? Or the other option is to um, essentially capture some of the benefits of that growth to scale by selling out. So um, a lot of small businesses are in that delicate moment where, you know, do I go up or do I go out?
1: Yes, yeah. And tell,
2: tell us about how you work with uh, smaller businesses that might be in that, that situation where they have a choice and how to analyze that choice.
1: Well, if they're happy with their, the way their business is going and they're happy with their internal investment, um we're not going to play God and, and, and try and convince them otherwise. But if they want to differentiate themselves and they're in growth mode, you know, there's plenty of professionals out there, along with bankers, um, you know, accountants, lawyers, um, business um, consultants that will help them get to where they want to get to. Um, so really, it comes down to them. They're, they're the ultimate the destiny sits in their hands.
2: And what are you finding um, at the moment with, um, you know, we're going through a period of stress. Mm -hmm. Some uh, people who have been running businesses for quite some time, they might have had a bad year here and there, Mm -hmm. but they sort of sail through it. And particularly because there's a lot of business owners who are in their 50s and 60s. They're heading towards... Retirement, um, maybe the son or the daughter they thought was going to take up the business <laughs> has not <laughs> hasn't has taken that up. Uh, so, what sort of things should they think about um, when you know? Sometimes uh, these stressful events can be the the triggers for these sorts of discussions.
1: Mm. Well, that age bracket you're talking about pretty risk adverse. You know, generally they don't want to take on a whole lot more debt. They might want to invest in, in a whole lot more infrastructure and take that added risk, and so really it comes down to their, their ability to communicate with the people with, that can help them through that process. So it might be their banker, it might be the child you know, that we're talking about that doesn't want the business. Can they convince them to, to come on into the business in a, in a shareholder buyout situation or something like that? But um, yeah, they've got to communicate with their, uh, with their professionals and make sure they make the, a well-informed decision. On their exit, mm.
2: yeah, because uh, that's often a, a tough one. You've got someone who runs a business. Uh, maybe they've invested their emotions mm. in in the business, and it's quite hard to sort of separate yourself and be be a, a ruthless business <laughs> person when you you know you you are the business. You know, yeah. you feel like this is your baby. Yeah, and uh, it's your identity. Yeah, yeah. And, and often you know, very successful businesses have really tough times and. You know, a sensible person might bail out, but sometimes it's the resilient, you know, grind it out, get through to the other side ones that that do well. And that moment of choosing to either stay or go can be quite a a difficult one. Do do you have any sort of uh, advice or thoughts for those people who are, you know, at that moment of – having to make those sorts of decisions or thinking about that?
1: Well, I, I saw a stat the other day which was relatively interesting. But never in, before in history has a transfer of wealth ever happened like that is happening now, which is basically the baby boomers transferring their wealth, um, their businesses, their homes, <laughs> everything they own, to the Gen Xs the Gen, the Gen Zs um, and the millennials. So the first thing is they're not alone. <laughs> You know a, a big portion of the world is is getting their head around this huge transfer of wealth. And again, all I can say is you know communicate with people that you know and trust and use professionals in that space because you know a poorly made decision can cost you know a, a lot of money and can do you know generations of damage. So getting it right is important, and the way to get it right is to use professionals to help you.
2: Yeah, that's often often the way with these small business decisions. Is often it's a family decision, mm. <laughs> and, and that can be that can be awkward. Yeah. Sometimes.
1: Really difficult, um, and I've been through that with my parents. And we got outside help to to help us with a you know a, a purchase, and it was great. So I uh, I fully endorse the using the using of professionals in that space.
2: And also sometimes you've got uh, people who are coming at it from a different angle in that the parents maybe uh, invested themselves in the business and are proud of it and expect that um, whoever takes it on would do exactly the same thing, whereas maybe, but they themselves aren't willing to risk adding more of their own capital into it. But sometimes if you are passing on to kids or uh, in-laws or whatever, you've got people at different points in their life. Maybe they're younger. Maybe they're more keen to take a bit of a risk. Maybe they've got a bunch of different experience. Maybe they've worked overseas in an interesting business that's given them some skills or or whatever. Um, you know, how, how often do you see this sort of uh, intergenerational transfer as a trigger for a growth moment, for someone saying, actually, you know what, Dad, you've done a well, Mum, you've done a fantastic job over those years. But, but I'm, I'm going to do something different. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, you'd be surprised. More often than not, you know, the business will go in a different direction um, at that point in time, at that transfer. So they come in with a, a burst of enthusiasm, um, sometimes an injection of capital, and they take it in a different direction. Sometimes that's, um, that's monumental for the, for the business.
2: Mm. And what are the pitfalls there to watch out for? That if anyone's going through their checklists of, uh, oh, I'm really going to go for growth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, hasten slowly is probably the key. You know, um, you don't want to overinvest early. You don't want, here's me working for a bank, but you don't want too much debt loading um, until you've got your feet under the desk. And sometimes the decisions your mother and father have made. Were pretty well rounded decisions, so I wouldn't reverse a whole lot of those. If it's making money now, and when you get your hands on the reins, it's likely to make money in the future if you if you steer it correctly. So,
2: fantastic, Wayne. Thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate your time on When the Facts Change.
1: Thank you. Thanks
2: there to Wayne McIntyre from Kiwi Bank. After the break, I speak to Land and Water scientist. Jeff Langford from Lincoln University. He's been growing strawberries since 1971. There's nothing he doesn't know about strawberries. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other Kiwibank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses.
0: Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland. So now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today.
2: Welcome in to Jeff Langford, uh, who is a longtime plant scientist who spends a lot of time with strawberries. Jeff, great to see you here on When the Facts Change.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Uh, tell us about um, your. Uh, experience, time with strawberries and, and why you love them so much?
0: Uh, well, I started uh, with the crop in uh, 1971, so it's over 50 years now. Um, but the crop, um, I really like it because um, it's one of the more uh, tolerant crops. So if you have a problem during the season, you still have lots of opportunity to for it to come right later in the season. Um, strawberries traditionally start cropping around September and nowadays they'll go till the end of May.
2: When I was a kid um, it was always a a Christmas tradition if you like to a couple of weeks before Christmas go to the local strawberry farm, we lived in the Waikato, and um, pick some of our strawberries ourselves. Uh, And things hadn't changed much in the 20 or 30 years that I remember it. There was a a plastic mound with the strawberry plants out in the open and I used to wander along and pick, pick the juiciest strawberries and not much had changed until a few years ago when I noticed a few of these hydroponic uh, tunnels, plastic tunnels, where the strawberries were at waist height. Tell us what's Happened there? How the the business of strawberry farming has changed for a few people?
0: Yeah, well, it's it's not exactly hydroponics because they're not growing in in water. They they are grown in slabs of coconut coir uh, that are imported from uh, overseas, um, and then the salts are flushed out, and then they're, they're fed like a hydroponic system. But there is some buffering capacity uh, in the coconut coir itself. Um, The key change is uh, having them up on what we call tabletops, uh, which takes them from the ground to waist height, uh, which is all about labour. And the big issue, and you've seen it right around the world, strawberries are a high labour input crop. And so we were looking for ways to improve the efficiency uh, of labour um, but equally uh, these hydroponic type systems have the ability to uh, yield more um, but it does require a lot more control and that's the challenge that i guess in the learning e- experience that we're going through at the moment uh, we're having to work out
2: So when you say control what do you mean by that
0: uh, control of water nutrition uh, right through the season how do you manage heat, uh all of those are quite different now to how they used to be so tell us
2: what are the advantages of having some of these plastic tunnel systems with the the coconut core in the in the trays w- why would you build one of these things as, as a strawberry farm uh,
0: labor is pure and simply really um it's it's all about the the cost of uh, and efficiency of labor and I was talking to one of the runner producers just the other day, and he was saying uh, that um, some of the traditional growers have cut back their orders this year because they can't get labour to pick them on the ground. And we saw this particularly in Australia, uh, talking to some of the Australians. Basically, if you don't have a tabletop, it gets harder and harder to get people to pick your fruit and work in the crop.
2: So how much more efficient is it to have it at tabletop? Because I can understand not having to bend over is good for your back, but what's the, what's, what's the scale of the advantage?
0: I, I haven't got any specific uh, details, but I know that for our little trial plot, um, the difference in time that it takes us to pick it uh, used to take us about three hours. Uh, nowadays, it takes just over an hour. And uh, tell us about um,
2: how it lengthens the potential time in which you can grow strawberries and uh, and re- how does it reduce the exposure to you know weather temperature that sort of thing
0: This uh, new technology has coincided with uh, new varieties coming into the country, and it 's the new varieties that are giving us the extended season. Uh, not uh, the system itself, and
2: uh, I'm guessing that for a lot of growers that they, they need to work directly or indirectly with supermarkets who are looking for a particular consistency of quality and of volume so um tell us about you know how some strawberry farmers are using these sorts of systems to uh, um, be able to work more directly with some of the supermarkets
0: yeah there's there's always a big our uh, bun fight as to who gets which of the uh, the supermarket uh, orders, and obviously the supermarkets are looking at uh, consistency of supply and consistency of quality. And uh, yeah, I mean that there the, are uh, some winners and losers. And
2: uh, I noticed just in the last Christmas that there was a real shortage of strawberries around where I was, and the price, the price went up. What was going, What went on in the, in the summer that just happened?
0: probably the worst season that I have experienced in my time, um, simply because of the amount of rain. Um, And it was just, it just didn't let up. Um, And even under these tunnels, um, you would have thought that, well, they're not getting rained on, they should be all right. The problem is that the disease that is causing the problem, which is a very common disease called Botrytis, uh, it only needs humidity. And if you've got uh, high humid conditions because of the rain outside, uh, even under tunnels, uh, you're getting that high humidity, which is causing the rot. Can,
2: can you also um, give us a sense of you know, how much development there's been in the industry over the recent uh, couple of decades in terms of uh, different varieties, different flavours, different yields with the different types of plants and the way that people are growing them?
0: Yeah, well, we bring in uh, usually five new varieties about every five years. And they tend to be, one of those five uh, tends to be a commercial success. What has happened um, even more recently, instead of just uh, the company that's bringing these in from the University of California, Um, there's now four or five players all bringing in new varieties. So not all of those have hit the market yet. So um, we're in for even more changes uh, in the next few years. And the industry,
2: when I was growing up as a boy, there were lots of very small operations, family farms, often around the big cities But I'm guessing like a lot of uh, industries, you've got some who've scaled up and some who've just uh, stayed there as relatively small. How has the structure of the industry changed over your time?
0: Uh, Well, it it hasn't a lot, surprisingly. And and I think, again, it comes around the labour issue, is that you can't grow strawberries without a good supplier of reliable labour. Uh, near your operation and the scale of your operation is still determined by that availability.
2: And so I'm guessing um a lot of people have to have their strawberry farm not so much um because the soil is absolutely perfect or but actually just because they need to be close to the labor source. Absolutely. Yeah and um uh, I'm I'm curious what's what's the sort of main limits on strawberry production in New Zealand, because I, I love them. I'd, I'd have them every day <laughs> for every dinner. But um uh, what, what's stopping us from, you know, um, growing them everywhere? Well,
0: we, uh, we do export uh, somewhere between five and 10 million, uh, you know, each year. Um, and that, uh, you know, once we get over the COVID thing and life gets hopefully back to normal, I would expect uh, the export side is an opportunity that will be part of uh, any um, industry expansion. But you need the, you know, the growers need the price to make it profitable. Um, And that's the the driver at the moment is that because labour's gone up, fertilisers have gone up, you've got all this capital cost investment trying to get a return uh, from a punnet that the consumer expects to buy for $2 just doesn't work.
2: And um, what do you think uh, we'll see in terms of mechanization of the industry over the years? I know that in some areas, you know, some types of grapes, uh, some types of apples, you see a lot more mechanization, pickers, pruners, those sorts of things in these sorts of fruits. Can you see this becoming more mechanised?
0: There's a lot of development work going on uh, with robotic strawberry pickers in the US, but uh, they are, I reckon, at least 10 years away um, from having something that I think uh, will work. Um, I might be surprised, it might come in sooner, but uh, they've been working on it for a long time so far, and it's, it's more difficult with a crop like strawberries in particular with these structures to set up uh, robotics to uh, work through a crop.
2: Is that because um, they need to be very careful when they pick the straw- strawberries not to crush
0: That's them? certainly part of it, yeah, and how they pick it and so on. Uh, that They will all be issues and um, making sure that the fruit is fully ripe before it's picked. Uh, will be an issue as well because you can have fruit that's red on one side and, and not ripe on the other, and that can confuse things like robotic pickers.
2: Yes, I, I became an expert as a kid at finding the juiciest, reddest, sweetest strawberries, which which was a real talent, I have to, I have to say. Uh, um, can you um, also give us uh, an idea of the types of strawberry farmers that that you know of uh, and how they're they're doing at the moment? Because often a lot of them will be on land that's quite close to um, towns and become very valuable, and there must be quite a bit of pressure to turn it into into residential.
0: Yeah, we've seen that uh, with, you know, three or four of the big Auckland growers uh, who have uh, retired or moved on. Um, So, yeah, um, it it is a factor when you've got uh, high value land that you can sell and retire if you want to. It's a question of how much do you want to keep growing strawberries? Or maybe even how much your kids want to keep growing strawberries, because I'm
2: guessing a lot of these are family farms.
0: Uh, not so much. Um, surprisingly, there the doesn't seem to be the enthusiasm amongst children who have seen their parents slave away for hours and months um, to actually take over and do that themselves. Uh, surprisingly enough, see, that was my dream:
2: is to grow up on a de- on a on a strawberry farm and just be able to eat strawberries every day for. <laughs> Forever, but I'm guessing I'd be sick of them after a few weeks.
0: You never get sick of strawberries. Uh,
2: Jeff, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks there to Jeff Langford from Lincoln University. I'd also like to thank Wayne McKinty, who has come to us from KiwiBank, the Regional Manager for Business Banking, there to talk about small businesses. Now, I need you to subscribe so that every week you're going to get the juicy stuff all about strawberries and economics and all sorts of things on When the Facts Change. A weekly podcast brought to you on the Spinoff Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. I'm Bernard Hickey. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.